Well, good morning. Happy Pentecost. You know, Todd's the only one, I've been doing this earlier this morning too, Todd's the only one who says woo. If I say, hey guys, it's Pentecost. There we go, that's better, thank you. It's Todd, now you have more, more buddies here with you. Hey, um, welcome, good morning. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Matt, I'm one of the pastors here. And I get the privilege of getting to spend some time in the Word of God with you. And so, so, so grateful to be with you. Uh, we are studying the book of Acts together since Easter. We're asking the question, then what happened? What happened uh, to the people of God after Jesus rose from the dead at Easter? What did they do? Uh, how was the church formed? And a few weeks ago, we studied the passage of Pentecost in which the Holy Spirit comes down as this fire that comes to his people and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues. They go out and, and uh, they, they, they're, they're, they're declaring the wonders of God in multiple languages, it says. And people from all different nations are coming to understand Jesus in a language in which they can understand. The church is born. There's like 3,000 people that come to faith that day and then they, God just keeps adding to their number. And it's just this exciting Exciting move. A couple weeks ago, I shared with you uh, a passage in Acts in which, there's actually two passages in Acts, in which the church just sounds amazing. Like it says that people are just totally united. They saw each other as family. They shared their possessions. They came to value people more than their stuff. You guys remember that week? Uh, and it's just this incredible picture of church. But church is not always that way, Right? Anybody ever felt disappointed with church? Can I get an amen? amen? You're like, I don't know. Do I want to say amen to that? But here's the thing. A lot of us, we come looking for, for church, and we're looking for heaven, right? We're like, ah, this is the people of God. I'm going to go find, I'm going to go find heaven. And then, you know what happens is you show up in church, and you find out it's full of people. <laughs> and then you're disappointed. You're like, What? these people are just like those other people, right? And we feel disappointed with church if we come expecting to find that it's like heaven. But actually, what it turns out is that we are all imperfect, sinful, broken people. Amen? But we are imperfect, broken people pointing towards heaven and pointing towards Jesus. Amen? That's who we are. And so because we are still, uh, we're not there yet, we haven't yet arrived, we still are so in need of Jesus, sometimes there can be conflict or tension in a church, and that is actually something that we're going to see in the scripture that we're going to read today. There is a complaint brought before the apostles, the early leaders of the church, the ones who had been disciples of Jesus, there's a complaint brought and they're saying something's not fair. Okay. Now, I don't know about you, but I am a dad of three children. And one thing I'm allergic to is complaining and whining. Amen. There, we got an amen, finally. There we go. Because there's this thing that happens, right? You, 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 you're driving them to somewhere special, right? You could be driving them to Disneyland. And they're going to be like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? This road trip takes forever. I hate this radio station. Uh, right? Why do we have to eat vegetables? I don't want to watch sports. Can we change the channel? No. All right? 
some of us that get exposed to like a certain level of complaining, we become allergic to it and we start to uh, not, not want to listen to it. But, but thank God the apostles actually listened to the complaint that's brought in the scripture we're going to read. Because sometimes when people bring up something, there's actually something significantly wrong that needs to be addressed. Sometimes it's not whining. Sometimes it's like, hey, man, there's something that's really legitimately not fair and we need to listen to that and take it seriously. So essentially, the passage that we're going to read, there's a complaint, and then there's a list of names. And so probably, you just skip it when you read. Okay, most people reading Acts, this passage, they're just going to skip over. There's a complaint, uh, there's some names, eh, let me fast forward to the more exciting part. But I pose to you that this scripture is exciting and has a ton of stuff for us to learn about what it means to be a church, what it means to be kingdom people. So I want to invite you to stand up and read it with me, or just uh, follow along. It'll be on the screen. Uh, This comes from uh, Acts chapter 6. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And so the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. And so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Lord, we just thank you for this word. Although it's maybe a less familiar passage to many of us, we just pray you make it come alive to us and that we could embody some of these inspiring values in our church that they did then in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. All right. I want to show you my goal is for you to no longer skip over this passage and see why this story of a complaint and a list of names is actually super cool. All right? That's our mission. I want, to absorb, uh, I want to share with you just five observations about what the early church values that we can find in this scripture, and my hope is that we can lean into these values today and that we actually see them at work in our church. So five things that this passage reveals to us about the values of the early church. Okay, the first one is this. Discipleship is who we are and what we do. Discipleship is who we are and what we do. So the term disciple is not just referring to the 12 disciples. Uh, A lot of times people think disciple, you just think of the 12 people who followed Jesus. But the term disciple actually refers to all of the Christians, everyone who's a follower of Jesus. You might be more familiar with the term believer or the term Christian, but actually uh, everyone who is called to be a a, a follower of Jesus, everyone who comes to believe, the term disciple applies to all of us, okay, including all future followers of Jesus. So 
Uh, I want to invite you right now to turn to your neighbor. If you are, okay, listen, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you consider yourself a Christian, I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, hey, I'm a disciple. All right, go for it. All right. All right, I got another one for you. All right, now here's the thing. Everybody who becomes a disciple also is given the mission to make disciples of other people, to, to share about their life in Christ, to share about the new way of living, to, to, to share the joy they have in Jesus. That's, that's a commission to all of us. So here's your next mission. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, hey there, want to be a disciple? Come on, try it out, try it out. All right, do we get any takers? Do we get any takers? Hey, if anybody, if anybody said yes, hey, bring them. We'll, we'll enroll them in a baptism class. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll baptize them soon, okay? We're looking forward to that. Uh, we're, we are disciples. We're disciple makers. This is who we are. This is who the early church is. And we see that. Let me just, I, I want to just uh, uh, show you. Let me look back at ver- chapter 6, verse 1. I'll show you a couple things. Chapter 6, verse 1. It says, in those days, when the number of disciples was increasing. And then you see verse two, so the 12, disciples, so the 12 gathered all the disciples. This is just how we know this, this, this word is being used. The 12 gathered all the disciples. Okay, I wanna rewind to Acts chapter five and see what these disciples are doing. Okay, we already heard about Peter and John suffering for their faith uh, and, and now we're going to see it spreads to the other disciples. But in particular, I want you to see something. Sometimes we speak about uh, Christians suffering for their faith or suffering for their beliefs. That's not actually what happens. Uh, in, the, in the book of Acts, and I think we would see it today, the disciples suffer when they try to spread their beliefs. Okay, because the, the, the powers that be don't know exactly what do you believe. That's like kind of inside of them. And they don't experience persecution when they're quietly believing and hiding. All the persecution comes when they're seeking to spread their belief, to make disciples. So their persecution is accompanying the making of disciples. Okay, Acts chapter 5, verse 17. When the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy, right? Jealousy because people are going over to this new belief system, this faith in Jesus. So they arrested all the apostles. Previously they arrested Peter and John. Now they're gonna, let's arrest all of them. And they put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord appeared, uh, opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell all the people about this new life. There's a jailbreak. He said, get back in there and keep telling the message. So, verse 21, at daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told, and they began to teach the people. All right, the powers that be in the temple, they get upset because the word is spreading again. So, verse 40, they called the apostles in and had them flogged. That means like beaten. They were whipped. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And they let them go. 
They're not telling them, don't believe in Jesus. They're saying, stop talking about him. Don't, don't spread this name anymore. Verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing, <laughs> rejoicing because they got away, rejoicing because they didn't die. Is that what it says? No, check this out. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. What? How many people have you, how many of you have ever had that attitude? Like you go through something, some kind of pain point in the name of Jesus and then you say, oh, thank you, Lord. You counted me worthy to suffer disgrace in your name. Wow. That's how passionate they are about being disciples and about making disciples. So verse 42, it says, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Discipleship for them and disciple making is who they are and it's what they do. This is why our mission uh, as a church, we are disciple makers reaching out to the community for Christ. This is who we are as a church. We're not just about drawing a crowd. We're not just about kind of enjoying ourselves. We are about seeing lives transformed in Jesus by the power of Jesus in the word of God and led by the spirit of God. Discipleship. Okay. Second thing that I want to observe for you. So we have discipleship is what we are, is who we are and what we do. The second one is the early church embraced diversity. Now, you've heard me talk about this a lot, and you've heard us talk about this a lot, but I want to take it kind of a step farther than we, what we normally uh, do. Just a little review we see in the early church. There's the diversity from the very beginning. Pentecost happens, right? This church is born at a moment in which there's this kind of international eclectic crowd uh, gathered together, and lots of different kinds of people uh, come to Jesus. In our scripture today, there's two groups of people that are mentioned. And I want to explain those. And we kind of usually skip over them if you don't understand it, but I want to explain those terms. Okay. The scripture today said the Hellenistic Jews were complaining against the Hebraic Jews within the church. Okay. So let me take a minute to define those terms. Okay. A Hebraic Jew, Hebraic Jew is a person associated with the Hebrew culture. This is a Jewish person who maybe lives in and around Jerusalem they probably speak Aramaic as their first language, but they've also been educated in the, the more formal uh, language of Hebrew that the Old Testament is written in. Uh, Hebrew culture is dominant for them. Uh, but there's also a group called the Hellenistic Jews. And Hellenistic refers to Greek culture. So these are Jewish people who live farther away from Jerusalem in one of the many Greek-speaking cities of the ancient world, right? There's vast regions that have been conquered by Alexander the Great, and he spread Greek culture, uh, Greek philosophy, uh, Greek language throughout the known world uh, at that time. And uh, these uh, Jewish people are people who've been scattered to those cities and have come to absorb Greek culture. Okay, there was a series of empires that had scattered them. 
uh, Assyria, Babylon, and then the Greeks under Alexander the Great, and then later Rome. And every time they conquered, they scattered and exiled groups of Jews who continued to practice their faith in God, continued to hold on to their beliefs, continued to hold on to the Torah, and periodically would make pilgrimages back to Jerusalem and spend time in the homeland where they would worship at the temple. And apparently the church, as it was born, uh, had both the Hellenistic Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebraic Hebrew culture Jews uh, both coming into the faith together. Now, it's a very different situation than what we saw in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you just had the people of God, and they had this common experience, this common life, common king, a common geography. They all lived together. But now we have a very different situation in which you have this kind of cultural difference. And you, you might kind of draw on, on our understanding today of different cultural experiences. Let, let's say someone is a first-generation immigrant from China. And then they are interacting with someone whose family has, has moved uh, here from China 150 years ago, and, and they're, you know, sixth generation. There's going to be major, there's going to be maybe some points of commonality, uh, but there's also going to be major differences and, and potentially language barriers, a number of things like that. Kind of a similar situation where we have Jewish communities who've been removed from the homeland for maybe hundreds of years, and so there's major cultural and language differences. Now, we also have uh, another group of people that's represented, and we see it in the list of names, okay? So we look at the list of names, and it specifically mentions in verse 5, there's also Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. What that tells us is he's not racially Jewish. He did not grow up in a Jewish household. He didn't grow up reading the Torah. At some, he, was, he grew up in some other religion, and at some point he converted and went through all the kind of ceremonies of conversion into Judaism, but he's from a whole different nationality. And so you have actually three groups. You have the Hellenistic Jews, you have the Hebraic Jews, and you have people who've come into this from totally different nations. And the church embraces all these differences. I think it's interesting to note they don't set up a church for Hebraic Jews, a church for Hellenistic Jews, and a church for converts to Judaism who became Christian. They just all are worshiping together. And their diversity leads to some complexity. All right, there's different relational networks, different languages, different expectations. And it leads to some complexity in the church. And the church has to grapple with that over the whole kind of book of Acts. What's the nature of these different people being family together? Now, we have a lot of diversity in our church. So it's something we can take note of, right? We have, if you look around, uh, you're going to see people that look differently than you. Different ages, different races, different uh, nations of origin. Well, we did a survey recently where we had, I mean... Half the church is fluent in, in another language. I mean, we, we have a rich amount of diversity in our church. And the, the, where we come from is going to affect our expectations of how things should be and what we value. So how do we live into that complexity? Okay, just another uh, point of illustration that, that maybe we don't think about uh, that much is we actually come from many different kinds of church and religious backgrounds. 
And I want to just illustrate this point. So we actually are, we are a Presbyterian church. Uh, I grew up uh, Presbyterian, and I was sort of trained in, in that kind of uh, lane. Uh, but not all of us are from Presbyterian backgrounds. I want to just do kind of an illustration for us. And we're all welcome here no matter which background that we're from. So here's what we're going to do. I want to just see the quick survey. I want to see a show of hands. Raise your hand, please, if you grew up in a Presbyterian church. Let's see a show of hands. All right. God bless you. These are the people who are predestined to be here. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. All right. We also have a number of people here who grew up Catholic, and we're so grateful for you. Would you raise your hand if you grew up Catholic? Okay. We have probably at least as many people who grew up Catholic as who grew up Presbyterian. God bless you. By the way, just a little funny little anecdote. A friend of mine who grew up Catholic and uh, didn't have much experience in Protestant church one time asked me, he's like, hey, does your church know about your wife and kids? <laughs> I'm like, what? oh, yeah, 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 no, it's cool. Our church says it's cool. Our church is, it's, it's totally cool here, you know. Uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't used to uh, the priest being able to be married. So, uh, so we have uh, a lot of richness that comes from our, Presby- our Presbyterian origins, a lot of richness that comes from people who come from Catholic background. You bring a lot here. Hey, some of you grew up in mainline uh, Protestant churches, uh, such as Lutheran, Methodist, Anglican, Episcopal, Covenant. Would you raise your hand if you grew up in one of those? Awesome. No, 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 we're not to Baptist yet. Baptist is not mainline. Uh, that doesn't mean it's not good. It's very good. We're getting there. We're getting there. But historically, okay. Okay, the next one, all right, Baptist or non-denominational? A lot of you grew up a Baptist or non-denominational. Raise your hand. All right, fantastic. It's like pretty much like kind of equal like in every group. Uh, absolutely, we have a lot of strong Baptists. We have, a, we have a Baptist seminary on our Presbyterian campus, right? How fun is that? Okay, okay hey, a lot of you grew up and you didn't go to church. You, you have no church background as a child. Maybe you grew up in a different religion or you just grew up in, my family wasn't, didn't, involve, didn't participate. How many of you did not grow up in church? Hey, God bless you. We are so glad that, that you are here and so glad that you're among us. So you see, just in those very different categories, we have a lot of different people represented in our church. Okay. My Mennonites? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Any other Mennonites? Just these guys? Right, we, got, we got some back there. We got some brothers. So I, the, the Mennonites are generally lumped in with the Anabaptist tradition with the Baptists. So I should just, uh, you should have raised your hand back there. Back there. Okay. Someday we'll do a class on uh, church history. It's my favorite subject in seminary. So, okay. So here's the thing. Depending on the kind of background that you're coming from, whether it's like, oh, this is the kind of church that I used to go to or I didn't go to church or um, the, the, maybe the country or the age, all these rich uh, differences that we have, they add complexity to our expectations. Okay, so we come into a church service, come into a church family, and we bring with us uh, lessons that we've learned in the past. And so we walk and we think, okay, what does it feel like when you walk into a church sanctuary? For some people, it's like, it's a very quiet, sacred, reflective space. For other people, it's a loud, boisterous party, right? Which, and, and you might feel like, oh, something's wrong if it's not the thing that I grew up with, right? Some of you have different expectations. What should the pastor wear? Okay? I grew up in a church where the pastors wore uh, really formal you know, robes. 
uh, for the traditional service and then ripped them off to try to be as contemporary as possible in the next service, right? That, that's kind of church that I uh, grew up in. Some, you know, all, all different expectations of how should uh, church life be. Music, right? What should music be like and what should the lyrics contain and what kind of things are we accomplishing? How do you do communion all of these things are different depending on which background that we come with. So how do we come in with such complexity and still love each other as a family? I know a pastor that used to always uh, uh, tell his church, hey everybody, we've got a great service today. I hope you love 80% of it and hate the other 20%. They was like, wait, What? Why would you want me to hate 20%? It's like, oh, that's fine. If you love 80%, that's just about right. Because that 20% that you hate, that's not for you. That's for some other guy. That, that's for some other lady. Like that, that, that's, that's for somebody else. So if, you, if you're in the service and you're experiencing, you know what, I really don't like this song. It's not a problem. It's not an emergency uh, to report. It's like, oh, this must be for somebody else. Thank God that we're loving on that person. Does that make sense? All right. So anything that happens, you're like, oh, you know what? That's not my thing. Just like, that's okay. That's okay. That's probably for the, for the Mennonites uh, <laughs> in the room, okay? Can, can, we, can we do that? Uh, and I think, I think that's who we are uh, as a church. We are, uh, we are people like that. I, I remember uh, my church in, in Davis. Davis, uh, California, interesting town. I pastored in for 12 years. Uh, everybody there has like five PhDs, and they're the smartest person in the room all the time. After every church service, we'd get like usually like a pair of emails. It was uncanny how many times they would come together. And it'd be like this. One email would say, Pastor, the speakers were too loud today. And the other one, Pastor, the speakers were too quiet. I couldn't hear anything, right? Too hot, too cold, uh, too much solemnness, too much exuberance, right? It was just always, it was unbelievable. And we just learned to say, you know what? rich complexity of our diversity, and we're just going to try to love everybody and make sure there's something for everybody. Amen? All right, so we're all about discipleship, and we're all about embracing each other's differences. We see this in other church. We, we try to practice that today. Here's this third observation. Uh, faith, compassion, and justice go hand in hand. They're not enemies. They're not rivals. They are partners that play together well in the early church. We see this in the Old Testament, Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus refers to these things as the weightier matters of the law. And the faith of the disciples is practiced in such a way they preach the word of God. They preach the truth of Jesus. They, 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 they expand the faith of the people. Secondly, compassion. We also find out in our scripture today that as they are walking around preaching the faith, they're also carrying around bags of groceries. Literally, that's what it says. There's a daily distribution of food to widows in particular. That's a group of people that is uh, vulnerable, that doesn't have a steady source of income. And so they're like, well, we're going to show up with food. And they're walking around town as they're proclaiming faith and they're handing out groceries, right? There's faith and there's compassion. And then there's this third category of justice. And we see this because it's brought to their attention that something is not fair, 
that something has gone wrong with the distribution of food. And in particular, what it says is that the Hellenistic Jews are saying the Hebraic Jews are neglecting the widows of the Hellenistic Jews, right? That means the Greek-speaking culture people are saying, hey, the the Hebrew-speaking culture people are not actually giving the food to our widows. They're just taking care of their own and feels unfair to us, right? And the disciples take it seriously. They listen to that complaint and they're gonna modify their behavior and their actions to try to be more just, to try to be more fair and make sure that the marginalized group is taken care of, right? And none of these are rivals to each other. There's faith, there's compassion, and there's justice and they just play nicely together. And some churches are allergic to one. Some churches think, oh, we're a, we're a faith church or we're a justice church or we do compassion, but Early church held them together, and so can we. Here's where we see it in the text. Okay, let's go back to chapter 6. We're going to go back to verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. I think the disciples probably had a couple temptations in that moment. The first one, and I'm just kind of getting this from my own uh, temptations here, is probably to deny, to defend, and to blow off complainers, right? Oh, quit, kids, quit whining about your vegetables, right? Second temptation they might have had is let's just cease the whole distribution of food thing. It's just more trouble than it's worth, and we can't ever be equal, and everyone's just going to complain. Let's just stop giving out food entirely, right? That's the temptation that we have to deny or to just kind of cease and desist, but it's not what they do. They listen with respect. They say, oh, come, like, we want to hear you. Tell me about this problem. They believe it when they say, they don't, they don't, they don't say, oh, that's probably not happening. You're probably miscounting. They, they, they believe it. Oh, there's a problem. Then they take action, and then they recruit and empower from the marginalized group to build a solution. And this is something that's profound here. It's a profound approach to a problem of injustice, something that we can learn more from. And I just want to take this to a few things that have kind of swept through our country in the last few years. Uh, I was actually living in Ghana when the Me Too movement began. And uh, I just was, was stunned on social media to see so many women bravely writing about their own experiences of sexual harassment or sexual assault or abuse in some way, including a lot of people that I knew were were writing about these things that I never knew had happened. They're bringing up an injustice. They're bringing up an unfairness, something wrong that had happened to them in their lives. And you know what the stupid people did? The stupid people responded with their opinions, right? The stupid people would say, oh, well, you know, I think, uh, you know, as though, as though they're the person that has all the answers and, and oh, maybe you're exaggerating this or you misunderstood or you're getting too, or whatever. You know, you know what the wise people did? The wise people listened. The wise people just listened and said, oh my gosh, like, I'm, I'm, hearing, I'm hearing your story of pain. I'm hearing your story of unfairness. It's not right that that happened to you. Uh, is there any way I can help, any way I can be involved in, in, in the healing and rectifying of this, uh, 
right? There's, and that's something that, that that's, that's what the apostles did in this situation where there was an unfairness. They're like, let me hear you. Let me believe you. And let me, how can I, how can I rally to you in some, in some way? You know, same, same kind of situation when George Floyd was brutally killed in front of our eyes in one of the most just unjust, horrible things that maybe some of us have ever witnessed and we just watched that video. Oh. And our African-American brothers and sisters started sharing with us. We're not getting a fair shake, right? There's things that have been stacked against us for hundreds of years and just feel so unfair. We're so wounded. We're so angry about it. And I think a foolish impulse for a lot of us would be to just jump in and, oh, well, you know, no, it's not like that. It's just here's a one exception, you know, and whatever we could say, that moment is not going to come off super well. You know, I think the wisest people just tried to listen and just try to say, you know what, let me, let me, let me hear more. Tell me, tell me about your experiences. Tell me about your pain. You know, give some validity, some affirmation to that and say, you know what, you matter to me. I, I care about this. And, uh, you know, how can I, how can I stand in, in solidarity with you. Same thing with Asian hate. We, we see uh, reports and, and, and we hear stories of, of people being lashed out at because they are Asian and somehow uh, people have some phobia or some, some fear of that or some anger towards Asian people in general and they lash back. And I think the silly among us want to just deny, oh, that doesn't happen. Oh, it's just, you know, one in a million and, and whatever. Like, it doesn't matter whether you agree or disagree. You can always give a listening ear and affirmation. I think the, the wise impulse is to listen to your friend's pain and heartache, to their story, and to believe it, and then to offer some ways, how, how can I be with you in this pain? Is there any way I can rally to you and support you in this feeling of, of, of just, just anger and hurt and fear that you're, that you're experiencing Right? This, is, this is what the apostles do when the Hellenistic Jews bring up their complaint. It's not fair. We're not getting the same amount of food. We're not being treated right. Our, our, our widows are getting ignored. And there's so many ways the disciples could have blown that moment. But instead, they listened and they believed and they cared. They said, well, why? what can we do to make these things a little better? And it had a profound impact on some of those people. Now I want to show you something really, really interesting. I'm going to, I'll read to you what happens. Verse three, it says, Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Okay, the Hellenistic group, group was the one complaining. Now look at the list of names of who got appointed to fix it. They chose Stephen, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. All seven of those are Greek names. This is pretty interesting, all right? A hundred percent of the apostles were Hebraic Jews. And a hundred percent of the seven that get lifted up and what we kind of refer to as being appointed as deacons, Hellenistic Jews. They, 
the group of people that was bringing the complaints, they actually recruited from among them and said, you know what, you guys are the perfect people to engage in this. Uh, you guys have, your group has been neglected. Hey, I'm gonna lift you up. And they appoint seven Greek men, Greek-speaking men, to take on this problem. And so we see that faith, compassion, and justice can actually all work hand in hand. I, I, I believe and I hope you believe. I love you and I care for your practical needs. And I'm gonna listen to your concerns, take you seriously, and lift you up and invite you to join us in leadership of this movement. It's beautiful. It's beautiful to see in action. So I wanna just review these points so far. Discipleship's who we are and what we do. Embracing diversity with all its complexity. Faith, compassion, and justice going hand in hand. And here's this next point. We're all called to service according to gifting, passion, and need. Okay, the disciples say, hey, it's not right for us. We can't neglect the thing we're called to do. We know that our job is to continue the teaching ministry, right? We're the, we're the ones privy to the original words of Jesus that spoke to us. We've got to keep working on passing those on and our sacred ministry of prayer. So that's our calling. That's our focus. But they see in some of these people that are bringing the complaint, hey, you guys are passionate about things being fair. You're passionate about making sure the food gets to the widows who need it. You're passionate about that. You have uh, the gifting and the Greek language to connect with that group of people. They say, how about you guys get to be the ones that solve the problem? They get called to service. Now, I'd like each of you to just think for just a minute. Are you... Kingdom unemployed, all right? Or are you kingdom employed? We, we think about all the time, am I employed or unemployed in terms of our you know, job in, in the world, which is, which is awesome and important. But, but, but I want you to know that no one has ever been called to follow Jesus without also been given the opportunity to participate in the growth of the kingdom of God, seeing the kingdom of God unfold in their in their community, in their, in their world. So if you feel like maybe you're kingdom unemployed, hey, I, I don't have any role in, in, the, in the kingdom of God, I just wanna invite you to consider that. And we as a church wanna help you find your role because every one of you was made for a purpose. Every one of you was designed uniquely special, uniquely gifted, you have passions, and those are your clues as to what job God has for you. And then final observation here, ministry is a team sport. The apostles are not alone. There's a group of them. The disciples uh, that come to be called to this new service, they don't get called just one person. There's a group of seven of them put on a ministry team. It's a major pivot that we see. In the Old Testament, there's tons of examples of like one lone prophet right, uh, being called to come in and speak, you know, in some way. But in the New Testament, it's always teams, the teams of apostles, the teams of the deacons. There's the team of Paul and his ministry companions traveling together. We're not Lone Ranger Christians. Everyone that Jesus has ever called to follow him, he never called them to follow him alone, but as part of a team. And that's how we work. 
The, the main way, if you don't feel like you're that connected in our church, the, the two invitations I have for you, one, join a life group, people studying the word and, and praying, sharing life together. The other one is joining a ministry team, a, a group of people that's seeking to make a positive impact together. And we can absolutely connect you with either one of those. I want to just close our study together by just reflecting on uh, one particular person that was impacted by these five values of the early church. And we're going to focus on him next week. And that's the person of Stephen. So our final study in this Acts study is going to be Stephen. We'll look at him next week. But just, just to give you a taste of how these five values affected him. When our story begins, he's a young man. He's uh, from the, the Hellenistic Jew, kind of Greek-speaking culture. You know, we don't know where he grew up. He's not part of the original 12 disciples, but he seems to be one of the people who's concerned about this unfairness, okay? So he walks in the door, perhaps a complainer in some way. I, I, I'm frustrated about something. There's so many ways the church could have blown that. But here's what happens. He encounters a group of people that are fired up about discipleship. And they model for him a group of people that takes the word of God seriously and is willing to suffer and, and go to prison and receive beatings in order to spread that. And that was inspiring to him. And that inspires something that's going to happen with him in the future when he is called upon to become brave. Number two, the church embraced diversity. If they didn't, he would not have been embraced. He was from the Greek culture group of Jews. And they embraced him and they welcomed him into their fold and said, hey, you matter to us too. We care about you. Come be a part of this church family with us. So he, Stephen, was embraced. He witnessed them at a moment where he was frustrated and, and things weren't being fair. He witnessed the church put faith, compassion, and justice all together and listen to the concern that his group of people had and take it seriously and, and, and address it and try to be fair and he was, I think, probably inspired by that. Wow, wow, that's, that's amazing. And then he, he witnessed the passion, the call to service, and they called him. They, 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 they prayed, they thought about him, they said, hey, Stephen, you're a man full of the Holy Spirit, we really respect you. We wanna lift you up into a leadership role and empower you to serve. And so he was invited, not just to kind of be on the margins, but to come forward and actually have some meaningful role in the church. And then finally, team sport, he had a group of friends. They, they put together a group of seven friends that could all share this ministry so he wouldn't burn out. He wouldn't be alone. They said, okay, you're going to be part of this group of seven. Maybe you're going to be the team captain. These guys are going to be around you, and you guys get to go do this cool ministry together. Those five values impacted Stephen. They shaped him. And with the passage we're going to look at next week, we're going to see how it absolutely transforms him. He's becomes this, he becomes this uh, this force for good, this force for Jesus uh, in his community, uh, that's just incredible to see. Now, my brothers and sisters, we can do the same thing. When we put into place these five values in our church life, the young people around us, the, 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 new, the people who are coming into the church from no church background, they're gonna see that, they're gonna absorb it, and it's gonna be life-changing. Sound good? All right, I wanna uh, uh, lead us in prayer as we prepare our hearts for communion. Lord, we just come before you today. We come to this table once again. And, and we just marvel at you, Lord. 
We, we marvel at the fact that, that we, we, we want to serve you, we want to love you just as an act of worship in the world, act of gratitude, but, but we know it's all about you. It's all about this incredible gift that you've given to us. We confess right now that we are broken sinners in such need of a savior. And we just thank you for your incredible grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks so much for being uh, here today. Uh, Just want to remind you, every week we have a prayer team uh, that's right over here. Uh, Dave is always the first one up, but others come and join him. Uh, So prayer team's over here, and uh, you can look for them and just ask them. They'll pray for you about anything. We've got a new thing today. Check out the big old sign. Uh, Intro to Christ Community. We've got a seven-minute party. If you're new-ish... Uh, to the church, and you're like, I wonder what this church is all about. What are the values? Like, what is, what is kind of the main belief? We're going to get you in and out in a seven-minute party, all right? Uh, it's going to be a little giveaway. We're going to talk about kind of what our church is all about, how you can get connected. So if you're kind of relatively new, you can join us right over there. I promise you, in and out, seven minutes. And your kids and youth, they can stay uh, where, where they're at. I mean, the kids, um, they say, the leaders over there say, it's cool, we got them for those seven minutes, all right? So uh, you're invited to that. I want to invite you to rise for the uh, benediction. This is just a blessing to, uh, to say uh, over you. And now, may the God of all peace be himself your peace. May the one who said, this is my body broken for you, my blood shed for you, be yours forever. May you know him as your Lord. May you love him as your savior. May you follow him as your leader. May you know him as your protector in this life. And may he lead you to be a profound blessing to everyone you meet. Go in peace.